on today's show. We are getting to know Yolanda. But first, a word from today's sponsor, Andre Psyche. AndrePsyche.com is gone, but Andre Psyche on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter is alive and thriving. You see, dear listeners, Andre has adopted a minimalistic lifestyle for materialistic things like mattresses, pillows, websites, cars, his hair. However, his creative libido has never been minimalistic, is still fully stimulated and often viewable on social media. Andre is a freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up. It's Andre Psyche the next time you're looking to friend or follow someone outside of your social circle. We also brought to you by Dewey Crush, the taste of summer. Summer's most sought out and coveted East Coast drink, the Crush, is now available in a ready-to-drink canned cocktail. There are three thirst-quenching flavors, the original orange, the refreshing grapefruit, and an iconic watermelon. Dewey Crush contains smooth premium vodka, sweet citrus triple sec, fresh fruit juice, and a splash of lemon-lime soda, making it the perfect partner to any summer event. So whether you're going to a barbecue, headed to the beach, or just hanging with your homies, crush it with the new Dewey Crush. Now available in Dewey Beach and all over Delaware. Want some more information? Visit DeweyCrush.com. It can be awkward asking for money, but we're asking for money. Please go to our Patreon link in the description and support the getting, the number two, no, the letter U, pod, for as little as $2 a month. This money will go towards the cost of producing, distributing, and improving the quality of this podcast. Two bucks a little too much. Well, here are three, three ways to help. You can push the subscribe button on whatever app you're listening to the pod on. Friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Go to Apple. Write a review. Those will cost nothing but your time and are greatly appreciated. Finally, we are looking for sponsors and advertisers. If you or someone you know has a business or brand and would like to expand your market reach, consider partnering with us. The podcast is downloaded coast-to-coast across the continental U.S., internationally, and all around the world. So if you or someone you know are looking to get more traffic to your site, more followers on your social, more purchases of your product, more clicks on your whatever, just message us. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And doggone it. My cup of tea. And Yolanda, thank you so much for coming on and um, letting people get to know more about you, but probably, honestly, more about a topic that it seems you're uh, pretty passionate about. I, uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So I had no idea you existed in Delaware at all till I came across a Facebook post. So if you have a, I don't know, an elevator pitch, we don't have to rush or anything. Time's not too much of an issue for me. But just to give listeners a little bit of background on... Who you are, what you kind of started, and um, 
how the heck you wound up in Greenwood, which I'm super curious about. <laughs> so um, in 2012, I um, filed my paperwork to begin a nonprofit organization to fight human trafficking in Delaware. And Zoe Ministries um, has been all over the state since then. Um, and when I say Zoe Ministries, it, it was basically me <laughs> from 2012 through 2019. And because I have a nursing background and I also have educational background in counseling and trauma, this issue of human trafficking has been near and dear to my heart since I learned it actually happens not only in the United States, but it happens in Delaware. It happens throughout the country, in every city, in every county. It is the second largest criminal enterprise we have in our country. It's a 30 plus billion dollar a year industry that has now surpassed weapons as a criminal enterprise and is only second to drug trafficking. So it's a, a major issue in all states, including Delaware. And when I started this work in 2012, there was no discussion statewide about this issue. We had no state legislation. We did have federal legislation, but we had no arrests or prosecutions under that statute. And so I set off to connect with the attorney general's office, and the governor's office and law enforcement to see what did we know about this issue. Can I, because I thought, and I'm sorry, ahead. just on the zoom, it always, there's always that lag and like weird cutoff thing. Uh, I'm so curious when you say there's no state legislation, like federally, you can't, you can't traffic humans. You can't imprison people and sell them like property, but the state of Delaware had no laws that prohibited it as well. Or what does that mean? The state of Delaware did not have state legislation. So even though we were covered by the federal legislation, we didn't have state legislation. And so we didn't have state law enforcement that was trained to it. We didn't have a task force. There were no prosecutions. There were there was no discussion of this whatsoever. So then and if, so, if someone were charged by it, it would get kicked up to a federal charge? Is that why that matters and it's just like an education within the state agencies where it's not like a budget line item where that would kind of matter correct okay got you correct so it, it's important on on a state level not only for um for task force law enforcement based training but also so that we can prosecute these at state levels because when we have officers that are on the street or connecting with our kids in our kids department through DFS, those, the local people are the ones that are going to be making the identification um, rather than federal most of the time. And so it's important that we have all of our first responders trained. So that includes medical and emergency rooms, um, hospitals were lacking training they also had no protocols or procedures. So there was a lot of work to do when I started this work in 2012. What, so what sort of trainings needed to happen? 
the first tier of training that has to happen is just awareness because people think that they know what trafficking looks like. They think it's the movie taken, you know, where people are kidnapped and then taken to Europe, but they, they really don't know what it looks like in Sussex County. What does it look like in Newcastle County? And so I started going as many places as would listen (laughs) to help people understand what does this really look like um, in the weeds? What does it look like in our, in our communities? And so when people started becoming aware of what this looked like and they started identifying this, we then realized that we have no state legislation, no trained law enforcement, no medical protocols. The foster care system is not trained. His department was not trained. And so I just very slowly started going into all of those agencies and asking if I could bring an awareness presentation. I did that for four years. In 2014, we had our first state legislation passed against trafficking. It was Senate Bill 197. We've had several pieces of legislation passed since then on a state level. So that's moving in the right direction, thankfully. Um, We still do not have um, a a statewide active law enforcement-based task force, but we're we're getting there. Um, There are pockets now of law enforcement that are trained, um, particular detectives that are trained that are starting to identify this. The issue is when we uncover this and identify it, then what do we do? when we are, are able to connect with survivors, but what can we offer them? And so there really has not been infrastructure for housing, for wraparound services, for trauma counseling, all the you know job readiness skills, all those things that the survivors really need to succeed. And if we don't offer them that infrastructure, what is their only option? is to go back to the only thing that they know. Do you have like an, is there an estimate out there? A number of how many, if they were all liberated, set free, discovered, uh, removed from their captors, (laughs) how many people are we talking about? In Delaware, I guess we could start. Well, because we don't have trained statewide law enforcement and because we've had no arrests or prosecutions under the trafficking statute other than maybe one or two. We're still not identifying. We're still not prosecuting cases. We're still not, we still don't have a protocol that all of the kids department is following. So we're still not, we're still not recognizing and identifying victims. Therefore we really don't have stats. The last stats that I saw out of the kids department came in 2019 and this was only through DFS in the kids department. This did not include, you know, YRS or the other agencies, but just DFS alone identified 34 kids in one year. So that didn't include any law enforcement. It didn't, it didn't include, you know, the juvenile justice. Um, there are a lot of different avenues that we can, we can find survivors but we're not, we're not identifying. So we don't have stats. Now, if we look at the States around us on the 95 corridor, because that's the hotbed, one of the hotbeds in the United States for trafficking, 
And we know it comes right through Delaware. So they can hop on, you know, Route 1 or Route 113 and go up and down the state um, very, very easily into other states. So we're often a pass-through state. So according to the UN report, if you look at the big picture, they reported, I think, three years ago that their best guesstimate was over 300,000 people in the United States are actively being trafficked year to year. If we look at the state of Maryland, which is obviously um, right next door to us, and we look at that activity, when I started this work, I think I went to their their meetings for a year or two, and in 2014, they identified almost 400 just in their state alone in that one year, and over half of those were kids, 17 years of age and younger. So my concern is that if, if we know this is happening in D.C., in New Jersey, and Maryland, and it's all around us on 95, and they have task forces looking for this, they have protocols and identifiers and infrastructure, and they're arresting perpetrators for this crime, where are perpetrators going to go on the 95 corridor if they don't want to worry about arrest or prosecution? They're going to come to Delaware. So that has been my concern. And we're, we're still, as a state, we are not taking this seriously. Yeah. So, and it, I, I don't, um, analogy wise, my mind almost went, my mind went to like different states with different tax laws. And you, when you get a certain amount of wealth, you actually really care about the difference. You hear about how beneficial Texas is for tax, people who make money and people, Florida, people who make money. I don't think I ever would have thought of criminals thinking that way and identifying state legislation, but I would imagine they would have to speak like that if that's how they're making their money, their profits. They would in, they would research that sort of thing. That's amazing to me that Delaware doesn't have a law around being surrounded by so many states that do. So we have, we do have state legislation against trafficking and several bills that have passed since 2014, but legislation is only as effective as its implementation and its training. So we can have the best laws on the book all day long. And yes, that's a great victory. And yes, that's a great place to start. And I've had some amazing support from legislators but if we're not training law enforcement and they don't know how to identify because they haven't been trained, then really what good does the law do? So we've had this on the books now for six or seven years and one or two prosecutions that we have had have been a slap on the hand. Gotcha. And I'm sure, would that be public record? Like, could people Google that and kind of see those statistics and be yeah. able to compare states? And so when, when people, you know, when I first started this work, the, the tendency was to say, well, we don't see trafficking. We don't have this issue here. So let's not create a public panic and talk about trafficking, especially children in the first state where everybody comes to bring their families on vacation. We're not going to talk about that. And so my theory in that is just because we don't have arrests and just because we're not seeing it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It just means we're not seeing it through the correct lens. And if we understand what trafficking looks like and how it works, 
then we can start identifying it in multiple places in our communities. And so that's one of one of the areas that that Zoe Ministries um, has been really active in since 2012, and that is public awareness. We have prevention education that we do in schools called Power of Predators. Um, it's a curriculum that we purchased from an organization in Arizona called Sold No More. And it covers everything from cyberbullying to sextortion to human trafficking to protecting yourself from a predator to how predators may lure you through gaming or apps or social media. So that's one of our programs. And, and that's open really to any school. Our goal is to get into every sixth and ninth grade class throughout the state of Delaware. We were getting ready to launch and then COVID hit. So we're hoping that we'll be able to this fall hit the ground running and work with the Human Trafficking Coordinating Council um, and also the Board of Education to try and get into sixth and ninth grade classes to help them understand what trafficking looks like and, and to prevent it. So and that's something that I had to kind of compartmentalize because when you say human trafficking, it, to have the, I guess the statistics, the DFS statistics, but then you are leaving those who have gone out of the DFS system, right? At a certain, do you, did you say they aged out at 17 typically? Well, when, when we talk about um, minors, according to the law with department of justice, if they're 17 years of age or younger and they are exchanging a commercial sex act for anything, it can, doesn't have to be for money. If they're having sex in exchange for a ride home from school, or a place to stay, or drugs, or food, they're automatically considered a trafficking victim. They don't have to prove force, fraud, or coercion in a court of law to be certified as a victim. That's only if you're 18 years of age or older. So there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways people can can traffic somebody. We have grandmothers who are selling their eight, nine-year-old grandchildren on the weekends for sex in exchange for drugs. So anytime there's drugs and opioids, there's there's a cross section with, or an intersection with, with trafficking as well. So I was listening um, to a couple, two of the TED Talks that are in your email link, and that was something where I was shocked. And I know we definitely have an op opioid issue down here in Sussex County um, throughout the state. And I did not, connect human trafficking to be from family, like family based, those who are closest to you doing it to you. I, and that, that's why when you had brought up maybe a fear of, Hey, we're the first state we're a vacation place. I almost wanted to like giggle. Like we're, we're, we're not seeing people like getting snatched, like in taken where they're being hooked onto the drugs and then sold to sultans on a yacht. I'm like that, that seems like a silly perception. I think the awareness, because those families that have um, dependency issues, I was shocked by that fact that they're using the children within their family sometimes to get their drugs. Absolutely. And populations, particularly that are homeless, um, are very vulnerable. Um, any, any child who has had any kind of trauma of physical abuse or sexual abuse they're at exponential risk for becoming trafficked later because their psyche develops around the fact that whoever is going to take care of them and says, I love you is going to abuse them in some way. 
And so they've already been trained that that's part of the relationship. That's part of the expectation. And so, especially when it's familial trafficking, it's normal to them. I mean, we see that as not being healthy, but to them, it's a normal dynamic. And so then they run right into the arms of a predator and it's just a normal relationship to them. Yeah, that's, so is sixth grade too late for this sort of founding or why not go all the way to elementary school? Because I'd heard you mention eight or nine years old. Is it just too graphic, too serious to put into like a second grade classroom? I think, I think it's great for parents to be aware and talk to their children developmentally on their level. They know their maturity level and, and there's a way to talk about this in second and third grade that you wouldn't talk that same way to a 12th grader, obviously. So I would think, you know, up until sixth grade, it really is up to the parent to determine developmentally and mature maturity wise, what the child can handle. But sixth grade, there definitely needs to be a conversation because these perpetrators know where the kids are and they meet them in those places. So for example, there are predators who, who they're creating new apps all the time and they're very intentional in, in getting um, your child's attention. And so there's a particular app, for example, that's a calculator app. And so if a parent is looking at a child's phone and wants to make sure there's you know nothing sketchy, they may just scroll through and think, nope, everything looks great here. The reality is in that computer app, there's a four-digit code that the perpetrator and the child only know. And if you punch in that four-digit code, a whole world opens up of possible sexting or videos or pictures or texting back and forth between just the perpetrator and the child that the parent knows nothing about. So there are certain apps that, that we talk about when we give these presentations that and we give out handouts to parents so that they know what apps specifically to look for, but they're in, in, they're in the gaming world. They're everywhere these kids are. They look for their vulnerability because they build relationship with them. So it's not a stranger danger issue. Yeah. It's, it's somebody who is looking to build relationship with you. And I just saw research the other day that said the average age of the gamer is 36. Yeah. So they are looking for young kids, especially during COVID and now in the summertime, to build relationship with, get them to trust them, and that's how they lure them into relationship. And sometimes they're 47-year-old men that have the picture um, and and the identity of a 17-year-old boy. And so it's it's really, it's pretty dangerous out there, and most people don't realize how active and intentional and proactive these perpetrators are when it comes to to seeking relationship with our kids. So not only doing preventive education for kids in school, but also for administrators and teachers and school counselors and truancy officers so that they know how to identify it within their student body and what to do when they when they do spot it. Um, we also I've gone in and trained medical personnel. Can I pause you um, at the schools for a moment, just because we're speaking sure. about the kids? So, what are some of those? Sure. What are some of the things that people within schools could look for? Okay, sure. So, um, kids often will 
sometimes be truant from school or may talk about being gone over the weekend with a with a new boyfriend or or talk about going to Jersey City to work or a new fun relationship that they have with this older man but often they are they are lured in by relationship because the the perpetrator will meet them at the point of their need so they meet them at that point and then they fill it and build a relationship with them and they might the kids may all of a sudden have a behavior change they may run away and come back and not tell you who they're with they may have a phone that they hide they may have a new tattoo that they may try to hide they may have a new cell phone that they don't really have an explanation where they got it they might have a lot of cash that they've never had before that they don't have a job that they could really access that um increased time online um, it's usually a, a trigger to really pay attention to what your kids are doing online. That's so. That, um, that seems almost impossible as a parent because I, I go anywhere you go. It just seems kids are on their phone all the time. If you pull up next to somebody at a red light and they have a child in the car, they could have five children in the car. All five of those kids are head down on that phone. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't I, like, man, that would be. I'm curious about the when you said point or need point of need where these predators meet kids at their point of need. Are there some common or typical points of need that you have come across? Like kids are looking to upgrade a phone, so then this predator says, "I can get you the iPhone 12." Or is it, you know, I really wish I could get some drugs? Or are there common points of need? It can be any of those things. Um, it also tends to be an emotional need. So if there's a parent maybe that is not emotionally available or is not active in a parenting role, or if there's been some kind of trauma with a parent maybe um, losing their job and so they're drinking more, so they're just not as available, or a parent who has died or someone who is in jail any kind of emotional trauma really sets their heart for, for looking to fill that. So I'll, I'll give you an example a re, a, that really actually happened. Um, this survivor that I connected with, it was probably seven or eight years ago, and she told me when she was um, 15 that, you know, she was on social media, and as kids do, they put their whole life out there and where they're going to be and what all their issues are. And so she had a fight with her mom. And she told her mom, I hate you. I don't want to live here anymore. And she expressed that on social media and was not aware that a predator was, was specifically looking for a kid just like her. And so he connected with her, um, said he was 19, started building a relationship and said, you know, yeah, I hate my mom too. Wish I could move out. A couple weeks later, as he's telling her how beautiful she is, um, she ended up mentioning that she was going to be at the movies that night. Can I pause and, you in the middle of that? And this is just like a cold comment. So th that's something I want listeners maybe who aren't familiar with social media to understand. The predator who's posing at 19, how does that predator come across the post of I hate my parents? Is it like a ghost follow? Does the kid have some sort of hashtag? Is, there, is this predator like Google searching Instagram posts that have in quote, I hate my mom. 
How does the predator find that post? You know, I'm really not sure how to answer that question. I just know that they do. See, that's scary. <laughs> because there, there's a lot of, I mean, think about all the people that, that kids connect with online that they don't really know who they are. And, and often it happens through gaming. They're talking to each other through gaming and they know a first name and they know that they both like this game. And then they contact each other through Instagram or whatever and start connecting that way. And so um, Keith, you know, found out where she was going to be that night at the movie and showed up in line behind her and started talking to her and telling her how beautiful she was and couldn't believe she doesn't have a boyfriend and that she's there by herself. And could they sit together because he's there by himself too. Took her out for ice cream after the movie and that's where their relationship started. And then what happens is after they're lured in and, and these, these kids and even women fall in love with this, this perpetrator, then it becomes a bait and switch. And it might be a promise that we're gonna run away and get married when you turn 18. And he gives her all of these promises that she's always wanted to hear because of that void. Mm. And so then it becomes maybe a few weeks later, a month or two later, because they're very patient in the process of building relationship first so that then they can start estranging the family. Well, I'm an adult and you're legally a minor, but I consider you an adult because you're so mature and I know you can handle this relationship. So let's keep this quiet from your parents until you turn 18 and then we're going to get married and run off. So that whole idea of we're going to stack up, stack up for a while. And your part of stacking up is that you need to earn some money as well. So I'm going to set you up on a date with this buddy of mine and you're going to have sex with him and he'll give you 40, 50 bucks and then you give it to him. I'm going to keep it and stack up that way. And if she's had sexual abuse in her past, that may be normal for her. And she may want to please him because she's now in love with him and she wants to do anything she can do to keep him. And so she may agree. If she doesn't agree, that's when the force, fraud, or coercion piece can come in. So she may say, no, I don't want to do that. But she may be beaten. She might be gang raped. She might be tortured and then forced to do the act anyway. So then she learns to just acquiesce quickly so that she can save herself all of, all of the violence. And that's how it begins. So, and often they will, they'll, you know, as they're building that relationship, they'll say, hey, just send me a picture. I just miss you so much. I just want to see your face. And within a couple of weeks, it's, well, can you just take off your top? Cause I, I really, you know, want to be with you and we're maturing in our relationship now. And then pretty soon it's other kinds of pictures or other kinds of videos, or they end up having sex and he videotapes that and then uses that as a coercive piece that if you don't sleep with this guy and make $200 a day, I'm going to blast this all over your parents' social media. So it becomes very bait and switch coercive kind of relationship. The, and Going back to schools identifying, the only thing I thought of was like the physical abuse aspect where if a student comes in bruised up, that's a very easy identifier. But most yes. of what you're describing seems like it would be so hard for schools to know, oh, this kid has a new cell phone or, oh, they went away for the weekend. The tattoo thing, maybe that's interesting. Why, why does 
a tattoo correlate with this? Because oftentimes um, perpetrators will will brand their their survivors, their victims, for two reasons. The first one is obvious. It's the psychological manipulation of I own you, you're my property, you can never get away from this marking, you're always going to be mine. The second reason they do it is if if a, a survivor runs away or asks for help and another a trafficker or gang finds them, they know who to return them to. Because usually the branding is of, it has some correlation with the gang or the trafficker. So is it, so when we're talking about trafficking, we're not talking about like psychotic, twisted individuals that are obsessed with these kids. It's really more of a criminal enterprise organization. Yes. Now there are, there are the psychopaths out there definitely that, that would fall into this category, but generally speaking, I would say it's people who see an opportunity and will exploit somebody for the sake of money. And there are, there are books and all kinds of videos out there that you can read and watch to learn how to be a perpetrator and how to do it well and how to groom and how to lure and how to dominate. There's a lot of information out there about that. That's, um, that, that's where the internet gets scary to me. Um, yes. I, I wanted to try to stay on school because there's so much there. So staying on schools, the absences definitely would be something if the child is not normally absent. If you're aware of any sort of trauma a child has been through, like if they're, um, you see that to me is hard to, how do you know so, kids are so good at like almost masking, like coming into school with that like blank face. So I guess you would have to look for a change in personality to know that way back something has happened. But see, then in my mind, I go, if the trauma happens in third grade, now we go to fourth grade, that child is basically when they walk into fourth grade changed, that's the new normal. So that fourth grade teacher wouldn't know, oh, child X used to be bubbly. Now they're just so melancholy you know like if you don't right. catch it that year if it happens over a summer or something like that you wouldn't even notice the personality change it may not be a personality change but if the child is things like falling asleep in school okay anything that would like a a, ma a major change or shift in their grades um because oftentimes you know peers will be able to um to notice those kind of changes amongst their friends. And sometimes it creates a problem that they end up then either with um, a counselor, the school counselor, who may be able to dig a little bit deeper in that and, and know what questions to ask. Because if you look at any survivor of trafficking, it doesn't matter how old they are. If they are in it, they believe they're in it with a boyfriend that loves them. And it's a choice that they have made to be in relationship with this person. If you would say to even a young woman, are you, are you being trafficked? They wouldn't have any idea most of the time what you're even talking about because to, to them trafficking is, is shoving, you know, a hundred people inside a semi truck and going across a border. Yeah. So people get, you know, human smuggling and trafficking confused. 
And so they don't realize it looks like a 19 year old selling a 17 year old girlfriend to his buddies and getting money for it. Yeah. It, it was like my head, I go to like pimp. You're basically, you have a yeah. pimp, you're getting pimped out. Yes. I, I think you said something really important there where it's, I recently traveled to Denver in the airport, you know, the whole see something, say something and going to sleep, grades dropping. Well, why does that happen in class? Well, because now your time is going to developing this relationship. So you're not sleeping at night. You're probably sneaking time on the whatever chat room, game room on your phone. Your attention's not there in class or you're not completing assignments. So grades drop. But kids, the friend aspect to me, I think is a great point where it can be emphasized Hey, if you notice this change, if your friends are now speaking about new people in their lives wanting to go away, like you need to say something, if not to their parents, to someone in the school to yeah. have an intervention. Like the, the friend yeah. aspect, gra grassroots, see something, say something to me would be the pivotal point. Because friends know their friends. They, they know their behaviors more than a teacher does, more than a principal would or a counselor would. And that's why our preventive education in schools is so vitally important. So when you talk about going to, to Denver and seeing these signs and posters, and I go, I travel a lot and I go out of state to different rest areas and you see the 1-800 number posted, you know, for human trafficking. And, and I, my question is, what do we see of that in Delaware? Yeah, no, no, you like, don't. And I, I don't know don't. if it was because, because, you know, Facebook's a funny place, man. You, you, or the internet is you Google one thing and all of a sudden all these ads and cookies come up. But in one of the stories of the Facebook you, uh, that I've been seeing scroll through is a young child or a woman with someone holding them as they're walking somewhere and they slap a water bottle out of a bystander's um, hand or they slap something down. And then they put like their thumb in the middle of their hand behind their back and they do like a wave with their fingers going top down. And then the person notices that wave, grabs the child or the woman, says, I have the cops on the phone and like basically saves them from this human trafficking. But it seems like if it's relationship based, the victim is not going to be reaching out for help. And that does that's not, a, when, a very, when yes, you think of human trafficking, when you think yeah. of human trafficking, you think of captive, captive and captive yeah. means I want freedom. But what you're describing, there is not a captive in that sense of the desire to be free. They actually have a desire to stay in captivity. And there, there are times when, when it is that relational pull that keeps them there, but also there's this very intriguing um, concept known as trauma bonding. And when people say, well, why don't they just leave? They're walking in an airport and they're a victim, why don't they just run? Why don't they just ask for help? And 99% of the time, the answer to that is because they are trauma bonded to that person. And leaving that person is physiologically like coming off of heroin. And so there is this draw. It's a very codependent, very skewed way to be in a relationship with somebody. But a really quick example to help you understand trauma bonding, I spoke with a survivor who was a, an adult woman at the time and her boyfriend was her trafficker and he would make her kneel in the corner um, once a week and in the dark and put a gun to her head. 
and say, I am so insanely in love with you and jealous of you being with these other men that he set up for her that I just can't take it anymore. And he would pull the trigger and it was click, click, click every Friday night. And this went on, she said, for probably seven or eight weeks. And then at the end of it, he told her, you know what, I love you so much, baby. You know, I wouldn't hurt you. I want to protect you. I never put a bullet in the chamber. I wouldn't risk your life like that. She was so grateful to him for not killing her that it actually made her fall deeper in love with him. The psychological manipulation that you're describing, and when you had mentioned there's literature out there, books, people can research how to apply this. To me, that's the scarier thing because it almost, and I I don't know, I'm not enough of a criminal to think like them, but I would think it would be, if you're going to invest in a criminal lifestyle, it might even be safer to go this route than to go with drugs because it seems like the laws, when you had said a couple people with slaps on the wrist, that there's not that huge punitive issue. You hear about the war on drugs since the 80s, right? And we're kind of decriminalizing marijuana and scaling back, but you get caught with a bunch of cocaine, heroin, whatever. It's it's a serious, serious offense. You're You're thinking, I'm in jail for life. And it's hard to hide that. Dogs can sniff that out, right? You're traveling with it. The human trafficking would seem like it would be a safer, and that's terrible to say, but like if you're intelligent, that would be a route where intelligent people could go to manipulate. And that's scary. That's really scary. And there are so many different commodities out there. There's there's brokenness in our world everywhere and kids with voids and needs absolutely everywhere. And when you sell a weapon or you sell drugs, you sell it one time and you make a profit. But with a human body, you can just sell them over and over and over and over and over again. And and then if they're too sick or they or they die, which often happens because of overdose or homicide or suicide or HIV and AIDS, if you survive all that, the years and years and years it takes to unravel all of that compound complex trauma People don't, people don't understand it's the rest of your life coming out of this kind of interpersonal, invasive, compa- complex trauma that happens over time. And so it really damages the core, the, the soul and the spirit of somebody to be exploited in that way. Because not only are they allowing you to be hurt, but they're watching somebody else pay for that and they are yet accepting the money. And, and it's over and over and over in a day. And so the, the, the average um, amount that has to be met for a quota in the United States is $1,000 a day. So many women that I've talked to and many, much research that I've read, most women are servicing 25 to 40 a day. And this, this kind of service is not just come in, have inter, intercourse, and leave. This is violent sexual acts that have been fueled, like jet fuel, by pornography. Mm. And so it's becoming more violent. And, and the, the skewed um, mindset of the perpetrator is, I bought you for 30 minutes. I can do whatever I want to you. And what are you going to do about it? 
report me to the cops because they're just going to arrest you as a prostitute. Is that? So there's no recourse. So that's typically what would happen if there, there was an awakening by the victim and they called 911 while they're in the room. It would, they would be arrested for prostitution and the person who solicited it would get a fine, just be told to go away. That has happened often in Delaware. If, if we have, if we are fortunate enough to have a trained law enforcement officer on the scene and he sees what's happening and he's been trained and he knows the underpinnings of trafficking and he knows the questions to ask, he can absolutely see that as a potential trafficking situation. But if he is not trained, if he doesn't know the red flags and indicators, let's say you've got a 22 year old girl drugs in the room with a, an adult man and an untrained law enforcement officer shows up. What has happened historically in Delaware has been that she has been arrested for prostitution. He gets a fine Her name is put in the paper and we pat ourselves on the back to say, great, we got another hooker off the street. And the cycle just continues. So uh, what questions would a trained officer ask to determine that she's been pimped out or human trafficked? Well, it would be more what he would look for in the room than it would be because she's not going to answer any questions right there. So the first thing he would do is separate the two of them. And I'm, I don't have any law enforcement training at all, so I don't want to misspeak here. Okay. But I have, you know, a few detectives that come with me when I, when I do train law enforcement um, who would know exactly how, how all of that works. Um, but I know that being able to separate her from him and being able to offer her immediate services and protection and the message that we understand that there is potential victimization here and that we're not going to arrest you. And giving that message immediately saying, we're not going to arrest you. We're going to look into the situation more and see what's really happening here. And the message that she is respected and has dignity rather than assuming that she's there because she has chosen to be there and understanding, understanding what does choice really mean? And so when we look at that piece with sex workers who say, this is my choice, this is what I want to do with my body. I'm not saying there aren't women out there, but we have to look at why they would, why they would choose that. And I don't know any sex worker that has her own freedom of movement, her own choice every day, keeps all of her own money, has all the freedom that she wants in her life. And if, and if she does, she just hasn't been in it long enough to be, um, to be offered a manager to help her with that and keep her safe because it's, it's dangerous out there. And so they will find these women who may put themselves on a sugar daddy site and say, you know, this is too dangerous for you to do on your own. And so let me, let me manage, let me manage you and make sure we keep you safe. And then those same kind of tactics, the relationship building. So what, yes. you, what you described there for the officer, and I remember, I can't remember, I thought it was legislation, where they were, might've been the city of Dover, was trying to decrease arrests, maybe have like a counselor ride along or some sort of like other de-escalator along with the officer. And 
you know, social media, people on radio, they're making fun of it. It's like, yeah, crime's happening and you want to counsel the person right away and that's going to work instead of, you know, shooting them or physically restraining them. We're just going to counsel them about their emotions and all the criminals will not want to be criminals. And I, I, I can understand the perspective from like their violent crimes of stopping a potential murder. But the situation you're describing right now would be like case in point for yeah, officer might need some help because I want officers to be very keen on justice, law. I want them to be very authoritarian and strong and you can control a situation. And for the officer to flip a switch like that is a lot to ask. But if you get that call and you have a secondary trained person that can come in and officers maintaining the situation, but then that counselor person can come and now speak to that, the victim, that would be a perfect scenario because how how alone how afraid are they 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 only have that one person their their trafficker to that they've depended on they they don't have anything and you're saying the infrastructure isn't there yet like that's yeah we can't we can't offer we can't offer protection if yeah. they if they say yes i'll be willing to um go to court and testify we can't we can't guarantee their safety we don't have housing we don't have wraparound services we don't have 24/7 um, infrastructure. And so if we don't offer something that's more attractive than what the perpetrator is offering, yeah. they're not going to leave. Easy choice in their mind. Man, that's that, that to me, what you're describing. And I'd be interested to know how often, um, like how many incidents there are within the state, because you would hope that would, that would, the number would be enough for someone to justify like a, yeah, we should, have a counseling department. At least you would think by county, you could have some people who are specialists who want to make a difference like you that could receive certification when these calls come in. Okay, I hop on the response almost like an EMT in an ambulance. You hop in and you go to the scene to try to help. And there are good services on folks within law enforcement agencies. Um, but there's, there's, so much training that has to go into the complex trafficking training and dealing. This is a different kind of trauma than somebody who's had one sexual assault or one physical assault, which I'm not minimizing that at all. But this kind of complex trauma re does require specialized training and it requires like 24 seven availability. Cause a lot of stuff times when stuff goes down, it's in the middle of the night. Um, and one victim services individual at a law enforcement agency cannot cover that whole area with yeah. all the calls that really could be taking place if we were if we were really looking for this and identifying this. And so many of the victims are told law enforcement is not going to believe you. They're going to arrest you. And there's the force, fraud, or coercion piece that kicks back in as a punishment if if the women get arrested. Um, and so then they're punished for that because not only do they have bail to pay, but then they've lost a day or two of their quota. And so they want to do everything they can do to avoid law enforcement. And they've been told that law enforcement will arrest you, will not believe you. And historically, that is exactly what's happened in the state of Delaware. And there have been horror stories that I've heard throughout the country in talking with women about law enforcement that, you know, sometimes an officer may you know, make an arrest and say, well, if you give me a blowjob, I'll let you go. And so then they do it because that's, that's what they're, they're trying to avoid 
you know, all of the, the arrest and the, and the punishment. And then he ends up arresting her and booking her anyway. And so when those kind of stories start circulating among the population and the survivors know each other, then they learn that law enforcement may not be safe. And so that's why it's, it's imperative that all law enforcement are trained and they know who to call. And we have specific um, folks at Department of Justice now who, um, who are very active and, and are ready to prosecute these cases, but we still don't have uh, the state taking this seriously and identifying and, and building infrastructure for survivors. Yeah, because and in my head, I'm thinking you're orphaned. So imagine if you were just a, a, a child, your, your home burnt, your family tragically died, and you were just alone on the street, you would you go to foster care, right? And then your school provides education, which would train you for a career. And then there's free and reduced lunch if you need to be fed. And you have all this system to help you if that tragedy happened. It sounds like a, hum, a person who's being human trafficked, like they're in essence an orphan in that nature, but there's not a ton of like, I'm, I'm 24 years old. Do, do, do I get like a homeless voucher to go stay in some CD motel that the state buys rooms from, right? Like how, how do I- And really that's, that's exactly what we've been offering is, is vouchers for, but you, you put a, a woman or an individual back into a hotel yeah, that's what I'm thinking. It's the same environment, right? It's only going to be a trigger. So it's not going to be helpful. It's going to re-traumatize that person because they probably were sold there at some point in the last six months. And it's not safe. Yeah. And and I just want to say one thing too before I forget. I'm using her and she a lot as, as pronouns for when I, when I discuss victimization. But there are males also that are victims and we are missing a lot of our boys and young men because of the stigma that there is to first of all being trafficked, but let alone being sex trafficked. And so there is, there's labor trafficking for both men and women. There's sex trafficking for both males and females and females can also be perpetrators because what happens often is, is the group of girls that is controlled by the trafficker is known as the stable in that stable of maybe four or five victims, one of them becomes known as the bottom or the bottom bitch. And she's the one that's in charge of keeping the rest of the stable um, obedient and in line, or she has to answer to the perpetrator. And so there's this pseudo family dynamic that happens within, within um, the trafficking scenario. And the bottom bitch often will become a recruiter because she can she can enter a social media scene as somebody who's a cooler older sister type mm. and girls may not think of her as you know the, the old man that's behind the screen pretending to be somebody else she's obviously a woman Safer. but then she she's recruiting into the relationship with the perpetrator and, or she may be a trafficker herself. And would that would that allow her to not be pimped out? So 
it, it, it is, is that part of the thinking? If you've spoken to people like this, like if I can recruit, then I don't have to do. Sometimes at first, but it doesn't usually stay that way because if a perpetrator is missing out on making money, he's not worried about sparing her anything. He just wants to, to make money. So there's, there's this new federal law that came out a couple of years ago that, that in theory sounds really good um, to decrease the amount of referrals to group homes and, and put kids in foster care so they can be in a family environment. The issue with putting trafficking survivors who are minors into foster care um, is twofold. First problem is that the, the parents, the family generally is not equipped to handle the behavior issues that come with a child who has had this kind of complex trauma. There are many triggers. Um, they, they can become violent, they can run. There's a lot of things that can happen that cause uproar in the family. And it's one bad experience. And then this really great family who just wanted to love this kid well, who was totally ill-equipped, not at all trained or prepared for this kind of behavior and this kind of trauma has now left that family traumatized. So the other issue is that these kids have learned to relate to adults sexually. So there's a high sexualization content to the relationship of that child with, with the adults in the house, or at least there can be. And then there's also recruitment issues because the perpetrator may have told this kid, if you bring me another kid, I'll give you $2,000 in cash if you recruit for me. So then the kids inside the home have a dollar sign above their heads and there's relationship being built there so that if she runs, she can take two more with her. That. So I, I understand the principle behind the group home is not the best setting, but for these kids, I believe absolutely that that is necessary. If there are not trained and equipped foster care homes that have wraparound services that can support them. And we don't have that in Delaware. So part of Zoe Ministries' answer to that is that we were blessed last year in the middle of COVID with a horse farm here in Sussex. And we intend to open um, late November this year if everything goes as planned. And we will be the first and only residential therapeutic aftercare for teen girls who have been trafficked. And so um, we were able to, for the first time, um, we, were, we were given grant and aid money um, by several legislators who have been really, really supportive of our work and, and we're hoping to, um, to be able to, to get some other grants this fall. Um, but it's an expensive program because we have to have round-the-clock care. We have to have clinicians. We have to have people who are really trained in this kind of complex trauma. And so it's it's not cheap. It's a it's a, been an uphill walk for the last nine years to get to this point, and we're still not open yet. So we're working on our licensing. We're working with the fire marshal on some issues, um, but we have a whole residential staff, you know, that we have to hire, and it costs money to have two people every shift, round the clock, 365, 24-7. And so we're, we need funding and we need support. And our, our goal is to get 
a thousand people that will all give $35 a month. And, and we believe that between that and grant aid and some other, other funding that we're looking at, that we'll be able to sustain um, our budget year to year because the, the farm that we're on is completely paid for. So Welfare Foundation gave us um, $100,000 to do renovations. Um, the Matt Haley Trust has been incredibly supportive. Um, Next Gen South, we've had some really great funders that have, have jumped on board, Chichester, DuPont. Um, so we're very, very grateful for that, but it really takes you know individuals to, to support us as well. So um, we're very grateful and very excited about that. And we have some other programs that we offer as well. We have this fantastic equine mentorship program that's um, currently is eight weeks, but next year we're going to switch it to 12. But we, we match up a, a healthy adult mentor who has been heavily vetted and trained with a child and a horse um, on a farm that we have in Harbison. And so we open that up to all kids. And it's not just kids who've been trafficked, but any child who has had anxiety or depression, specifically since COVID, um, of course, a child who's been trafficked, but any kind of sexual abuse, physical abuse, any child that's in the foster care system already has some level of trauma. So we open up to boys and girls age 12 to 17 in that program, and we use it to talk to them about healthy boundaries and safe relationships. We always do a, a prevention point on trafficking to help keep them from becoming trafficked later. Um, and the kids love the program. And we have a grant right now that um, can support kids financially if parents are not able to afford that, but, but their kids need some extra support. So we'll start that program up again. The next round starts in September. But all the information about all of our, all of our programming is on our website as well. And that's the website is? is zoe zoe dash delaware.org i was trying to do some math with a thousand people 35 dollars a month so that's 35k a month right mm -hmm. the type of people and the qualifications and training just i'm looking in my head at salary uh, like that seemed low. And I, I don't mean to be insulting in any way. I guess it's just the weird way my mind works. Cause then I think of food and heating and, you know, cooling bills I, and just cutting yeah. grass. And I'm like, my mind logistically, I'm like, wow, that just seems like, like, well, that, that certainly, that certainly is not our full budget. That's, that would, <laughs> right. that would pay, that would pay a portion. And so we're hoping that by being in, you know, with grant aid and the other funding that we're going to get, that if if we can, I mean, we're we're looking at probably a million dollar a year budget to sustain what we have to sustain with with everything that we have to do to run this well. Um, so that would be a that would be a portion of it. Yeah. Because there are people that would easily give thirty five dollars a month if they knew about this. They had no idea trafficking was happening or that there's even a home that's open that they could support. Um, some people obviously can give more than that. Yeah. Um, some people can only give $10 a month. We're, we're grateful for whatever level people feel like they can give. Um, but, but that can be a chunk of our sustainability 
and it can help keep the communities connected to Zoe Ministries and the work that we're doing. With the grants that you're receiving, is it like an annual application? Because maybe I'm just a pessimist. I would be so scared of not, I've established this and then having to just apply for it every year would give me anxiety. Or is it a commitment of, hey, this grant is a 10-year grant and you're locked in for these funds? Some of them are once a year. Most of them are every other year. Some of them go for three years and then you can reapply. Um, But that's part of the reason why we need to engage um, other funding and, and churches and community support and individual support so that we can help sustain that. Um, part of, part of our belief system, because we are faith-based, I have watched God do absolute miracles in the last nine years with this. And I believe that because this is his work, he is going to bring what we need to sustain. I've watched him do it over and over again. That's why we have the, the horse farm that we have. Um, it was miraculous how that happened. And so we believe that it, that's going to continue and, and we're walking by faith. We have, we have no grand multi-year plan over the next five to 10 years. Um, but, but we know he's going to provide and we're doing our due diligence and seeking funding. And our goal is to have enough success and build enough relationship with funders and grantors that they can, we can report back to them the success that we're having and the work that we're doing. And that will inspire them to keep long-term relationship with us. That makes sense. T- tell me how the horse farm came to be had. So <laughs> I was looking at different properties, um, 2019 and went to several different, properties and it just didn't work out or the price wasn't right. And so we just sort of waited and kept doing our programming and kept doing our training. And then I found this fantastic property, um, the summer of 2019. And so we looked at it and went back a couple times and, um, the price was very reasonable, but it was way more money than what we had in the bank. We weren't even taking salaries yet. <laughs> like I hadn't been paid for nine years. I'd never taken a salary. And so um, it was a, it was going to take an act of God <laughs> because we told uh, the property owner about what we wanted to do there. And she was so moved by our work that she said, I really want Zoe Ministries to have this property and I'm going to be praying for you that you can get the money. So we decided on six months um, from like, I think it was October that we decided that. And um, of course, six months later was April a month after COVID had hit. And in, in that time we only raised $5,000. And then all the monies that we were counting on that we could submit our grants to in April, May, and June were gone because of COVID. And so every, everybody was, you know, COVID relief and we're not giving any money. And, you know, there was, there was nothing available. And I thought we've got 30 days to raise over $600,000 and we're in the middle of a pandemic. 
and I don't know how this is how this is going to happen, but I'm I'm trusting that that if this is where we're supposed to be, God's going to bring it, but it's going to have to be Him because I, I'm clueless about how to raise this kind of money. And so um, weeks went by, and it came down to the last day of the six months. And it was five o'clock in the afternoon. And I, I had to tell this woman by, I said, by eight o'clock, I'll have an answer for you. And it was five o'clock and I called our, our mentoring program out in Ohio, which is Rahab Ministries. And I called their leadership team and I said, I spent a half an hour on the phone with them explaining what had happened and that we don't have the money. And I was in tears and, um, they were, you know, praying for me and I hung up and I checked my voicemail and I had gotten a call during our, during our call that I didn't take. And so after I hung up with them, I checked my voicemail and somebody said to me, you need to check your email. So I go to my email and I open it up <laughs> and there was um, a connection with someone who made a $625,000 private anonymous donation. That's like a movie. This whole special. thing, this whole thing with Zoe from the very beginning has been like a movie. It is, it is crazy what has happened and, and how God has just kept plunging us forward above all the obstacles. And it's, and it's been hard. It's not been easy, but he has been really faithful and we just keep plugging along and doing the next thing. And every time we pick our foot up and we don't know where it's going to land by the time it hits it hits its solid ground and we just keep taking the next step. So, um, it, it's, been, it's been quite a journey. Do you, you have to have an idea, like a, a, a guess, an intuition of who that came from, right? The 625. Yes. I, I do. I do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you reach out to them but, to ask or you just keep that to yourself and your, or to them? And ask. But how, how that person came to do it was was God putting it on was it was a miracle the way God orchestrated all of that because certain things had to happen in that person's life in order for that to happen and that miraculously happened too. It was like a domino effect of miracles. So did you actually speak to the person? Like you found out who did? Uh, yeah, it wasn't anonymous to me. Oh. But the person just asked that I keep it anonymous. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Can yeah. you talk about any of the things that went on with them? I mean, not their name, but like what had to line up in their lives to uh, make I it happen? I, I don't feel like I can share that because gotcha. it's not my story to give. But um, That's but it, it was just, uh, it was one thing after another after another that had to line up in a certain amount of time. And it came down to the last minute and it all lined up and it all just started affecting a lot of different things. It, it was crazy. I mean, I'm trying to be like, could I afford, I think I could do $35 a month in my head. Like I'm budgeting. Right. And then when you say <laughs> over half a million dollars, I'm like, wow, 
that to have that much from a single donor is it, it, it's mind blowing, mind blowing. It is. It really is. And you're, and you're investing in the souls, the traumatized souls of individuals, of kids who really did not have a choice. They were coerced. They don't have the mental capacity and the developmental capacity in their brain structure to be able to make those kind of decisions. And so it's not their choice to be there. And yet they are traumatized for many years and, and need people to support them. And, and when we can tell the kids, you know, it's not just these, these funders that have a lot of money, but there are a thousand people that are giving every single month because they care about you yeah. and your healing. And, and that's a powerful, powerful message. It could, yeah. Cause it's, it's belief without knowing them. It, it, it's they're worth way more than $35, but in their heads, they're like, wow, that's my value. And then I don't have to perform or do you just want me to be happy and whole. You just want me to function. You want me to go find a job and, you know, have a life. That's it. That's all I have to do to repay you. Wow. Like that would be mind blowing coming from where you described earlier. Yes. And that can be really overwhelming to them at first to, okay. uh, to understand that people, people do care about them. Sometimes it takes months or a year or two before we can build enough trust and relationship and, and rapport that we can start really digging into some of those, those layers. But it takes a long time, which is why this home is long-term. So my vision, um, and I don't know when this is, going to come to pass or even if it is if this is zoe ministries or if this is somebody else that we partner with in the future but i would love to do a transition home um, because we're only going to be licensed through through child care licensing for 12 to 17 year olds and so our 18 year olds um need need a place to go they're they're not adults just because they have their 18th birthday and so I would love to be able to, um, to build a transitional like apartment setting that, that is on our property because we have over 20 acres. So we could put it on our property and still have them under our purview and have them safe, but give them the next step toward independence. Yeah, Cause imagine if you get to Zoe ministries and you're like, you just turned 17 and you need help and then you, you're on that time limit and everybody heals at a different time, right? right? There is no four steps. Hey, here's the three week plan, you know, like six minute abs. If you just work out six minutes every day, here's your abs. It's like, Hey, yeah, come, you get 12 counseling sessions. You're healed. Like in right. counseling doesn't work like that. It's impossible to put a, like a hard timeline on it. Yes. That's a, Absolutely. and I don't know. I don't know if I'm too much of a numbers person, but I love the 625 is an astronomical number. But then the, when you started talking about the person, I felt like a jerk because I'm like, yeah, I just put a price tag on kids who need healing. Then my mind went to the government and I thought from a most like selfish tax point, if you poured that kind of money into helping, what are the savings down the line? on the system, right? If you could really pour Absolutely. some tax money early on, help these people get right at, I'll just put a number on, by the time they're 25, you as a government still have what, 
35 years where they're going to pay taxes back into the system and hopefully have a job and not be a strain on the system. You're recouping that investment, right? Like, um, it, it can the government get like, is the government, how much government that you can talk about, like is into helping with this funding this? Well, the, the federal government, um, has given millions of dollars um, to the states over the last several years um, because it's really become, you know, the hot topic of conversation nationally um, in the last probably eight to 10 years. Um, This is the first year that we've received any money from the state through grant and aid. Um, There was a surplus of money um, come into the state of Delaware. so I'm, I'm thankful. However God wants to bring that is great with me. Um, I, I do believe that, um, that you're absolutely right in what you're saying. If you look at it, apart from the souls and the hearts and the healing that needs to happen, if you look at it from a fiscal perspective and you think about the fact that if these kids don't have a place to go to heal, we all give away what we've got. So if we're broken and angry, we're going to give away broken and angry. So if we have these kids who are not being spoken truth to, they don't really know who they are. They believe that they are for one, made for one purpose only, which is what they've been told while they were exploited. They don't see their value and worth. They haven't been healed. They don't have an education. What is their chances of growing up to 25, as you said, and being a responsible, law-abiding citizen that gives back to their community unless they have the resources and the truth together in the right recipe it's not likely to happen my my fear would be if you survive the experience as a youth and you are no longer trafficked what have you learned it's almost like if you grow up with your parents what your parents teach you a lot of times like my daughter might become a teacher because i'm a teacher right she hears about it she knows the family business of teaching Imagine if your family business was human trafficking and now you're 30 years old and you've made it through. What are you likely to make your business? Like from that standpoint alone, if you don't help them, this would just continue to spread. Absolutely. And when you look at one perpetrator and all the lives that can be affected through one perpetrator. Yeah, that's where I'm like... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, that's where I started getting overwhelmed thinking of that ripple, like a pond, one one perpetrator, a stone in a pond, and that ripple effect to other people's lives and the the drain. You you would think that this would receive the type of publicity, financial support that the war on drugs would. Like you would almost have it as like a subsection or an agency within that. Um, realm. I'm very surprised, very surprised that the funding for it is, is not there. I have to say that I, I have been pretty disillusioned with the state of Delaware <laughs> since 2012. Um, I feel like we're probably at the best place we ever have been, but we have a lot of work to do and a lot of training and and state, it doesn't become the largest, like the second largest criminal enterprise in the country without every state either covertly or overtly benefiting from this happening. How do you, how do you see the, or what would be the benefit? 
Money. So like money the, and sex. That's what it's about. No, but like the state so, receives money by fining and jailing. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying the state. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm not saying the state. I'm saying individuals. Gotcha. Okay. In every state. Gotcha. And some of those individuals are across the states. They're in law enforcement. They're in. They're behind a pulpit in churches. They're legislators. They're they're high up in government. They're teachers. There are individuals that are benefiting greatly monetarily, and sometimes those individuals have um, power and authority. Decision making within the system. Really? So you're not talking about them just the only example I can think of is like going on Craigslist or like, Hey, I know a guy I can help you to have a good time. You're talking about them actually being the traffickers. There are, well, if you watch my Ted talks, you know that traffickers come from all walks of life and traffickers are much like victims. They can be absolutely anybody. So most people would not think that an 80 year old grandmother is going to be a trafficker. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to the family. That's so true. that, That, that shocked me. And there, if you look, if you look across the nation, and on the ninety-five corridor, there are, there are law enforcement officers who have been charged and arrested with trafficking. There are attorneys. There are doctors. There are principals. There are. I mean, it's it's absolute. There's no profile for a trafficker. It's anybody who has access, who has the desire to exploit. And it's greedy. Those are the only, the only profiles really that we have because it can be a 12 year old pimping out his eight year old sister. It can be a grandmother. It can be a foster parent. It can be a teacher who built a relationship with a ninth grade class of girls. It can be a coach. It can be absolutely anybody that builds relationship and sells somebody for sex. So that's, that's scary to hear too. Cause you, you, you want to trust those positions, right? Like a lot of those words you say, you, you just, first thing you should think of is like trust, care, well-being. Yes. They have and, my many, well-being. and many of them are, many of them do. There are a yeah. lot of really good apples, Yeah, yeah. but all it takes is one bad apple. And, and we've got some really good apples in Delaware. I mean, we've got some people that are working really hard on this issue um, that are very passionate and really care about it. Um, and and most of us, like we know each other, we're a community. And I, I want this community to grow and to expand so that we can protect our communities and not become the hotbed on the 95 corridor because we've got our head in the sand and we want to act like this isn't happening here. So I, I had a question about Zoe Ministries, and I don't know if it's too far off because I try to be organized, but I'm, I don't think I'm that great. I'm just so random in speaking. You know, like you get in a conversation and then you just start forking off. But back to sure. the Zoe Ministry, the, the, the horse farm, um, how many uh, victims of human trafficking would be able to stay there? residentially. I didn't get any of those details. So if, if we're, if we're at our max, we can take six at a time. 
um, best practice and research has shown that more than six is is a, not a good idea because of the all the dynamics and the interplay interpersonally that happens with the survivors and because they do have such complex trauma more than six um, is is not wise so we want to make sure that the girls that we bring in we're, we're able to do everything we can for each individual girl and and get her to a point where we're not traumatizing her because we're bringing all these new people in and out and and we're not about the numbers um, we're about healing and and holistic care and so what I would love is to be able to you know work with other nonprofits who are able to raise money who are able to do this who we can partner with that that can maybe there can be somebody that can open a home in Dover that can go through the same process that we went through licensing wise, but we can help them do that if they can raise money for that and they can sort of do this on their own. So I, I would love, you know, for Zoe to be the model for that because there really isn't one in Delaware. Um, we're creating that as we go, we're blazing the trail, which is pretty much what we've done since 2012. So originally I think you'd said 34 kids according to DFS and I'm like trying in 2019. to 29. So I'm again, trying to do the numbers. Basically you need six other Zoe homes to meet the current identified need without the transitional home. Correct. It, and, and that's, and that's only one out of 30 agencies that should be identifying with the protocol and they're, and we're not. Yeah. Was it purposeful to set up Zoe in Southern Delaware to try to, get away from the 95 corridor or is it just happenstance that you're in Sussex County? That's that, well, that is, that is part of it. Like we, we want to get away from Wilmington and away from 95 as much as we can. Um, my office, um, and my residence has always been in Sussex since 1990, okay. six, I think. <laughs> um, so it's, it, I was the only one doing the work until 2020. And so, um, my office was just there, but when I started looking, we did originally find a horse farm that we were looking at in Dover. And we were initially thinking, you know, the middle of the state, that way it'd be more easily accessible for everybody. But because this is a long-term residential, they're not going to be driving back and forth anyway. And they're, they're going to come and stay. And then we take care of the transportation. So the setting is just, absolutely beautiful and and the house is perfect for for what we need um and we're we're building some really great community partnerships it sounds like it um it it just you think country and tranquil for healing right Mm -hmm. i mean it's just yeah sometimes it can be overwhelming to them because they've been used to this complete chaos and running here and running there and and surviving and having all the abuse and there's all these dynamics that are just coming at them all the time, constantly. And then when you take them out of that and you set them in a completely different setting and it's nothing but quiet, yeah, scary, that can be overwhelming to them scary because it's a complete culture shock to yes. be alone with your thoughts. Like it's, it's eerie. And I've noticed this and it's such a simple analogy or, um, metaphor, connection, 
but like everywhere you go tends to have music. Like you pump gas, there's music. You, you go to the grocery store, there's music. You walk around the mall, there's music. There's always some sort of stimulation for your mind to not really focus on you, your thoughts and where you are emotionally, right? So many distractions, lights and screens. I couldn't imagine what's in their head and the distractions that are going on there to then have all those extra voices removed and now you're hearing crickets, <laughs> right? Like hearing the wind through trees and that's your only distraction. It would be, it would be scary for me to like see, to, to like really get into your own thoughts after experiencing human trafficking. And that's part of <laughs> part of our job. And what we want to do is to be able to keep the girls busy mm -hmm. and keep their days full of things that can keep them forward motion and keep yeah. their, keep their thoughts until it's, until it's, time for them to sort of learn to quiet that yeah. when it's time for for group or time for individual therapy but that's why a trauma-based counselor is really really important um, in our team um, and there are several positions that we are that we are looking to hire the end of the summer beginning of fall um, so that we can onboard the first two weeks in november so um, those positions will be listed probably by the end of August. So if any of your listeners are, are interested, um, we do need to hire um, residential staff and um, we still have not hired um, another clinical counselor yet at this point. So there's going to be some positions coming open and also some volunteer opportunities. And if people want to get to know us, like meet us, we're having a community event next Wednesday, actually. Um, from five to eight, we'll be at Hudson Fields for um, Thankful Thursdays with Revelation Brewery. That's the sponsor. We were supposed to have it last night, but because of the tropical storm issue, right. we had to go with a rain date, which was next Wednesday, the 14th. Gosh. So people can come out and, and meet us and talk to us. There's going to be live music and food truck, ice cream truck. Um, we're hoping to have some spear throwing and some face painting and some stuff like that. I'm not sure what kind of vendors we'll have there yet, but we're still working on that. But we just want to invite people out. We'll have a table there. Man, you can check us out. We'd love to meet you. It's see that, and and again, I I hate to be so number and money centered, but I'm looking at it from the government and talk about great. I would assume middle class job creation that's occurring while you're helping the community. If you, it, you can get, so would you actually, what would be the educational requirement typically? Are you talking about like a bachelor's degree or is this more like an associate's kind of course training certification to be a counselor? Um, for, for the clinical counselor, um, they would have to be a licensed mental health clinician. So that would be a master's degree with with certification as licensed as a licensed clinician. Okay. So as far as the residential staff goes, um, we sort of take it on a case by case basis. We prefer bachelors, but in associates with with experience with youth or in trauma somehow um, would be considered as well. So um, the applications are are on our website, and you can you know pe people can leave a resume if they're interested. Yeah, I feel it, it again because with COVID, I think of jobs and I see the we're having trouble hiring. You know, the livable wage discussion is a big deal. And if there was 
federal and state support going towards places like this, you're creating, again, selfishly, solid jobs, it seems like, that are now helping people and the community. And it really just seems like it would be a very much worthwhile investment from the state government to support. I agree. I think I'm going to take you with me to Lake Hall next time I go. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying my best to be on my best behavior. Usually I'm terrible in meetings, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I don't I don't pick up on social cues well, and I don't understand politics. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm bad at it. Um, I'm trying to get better. It's my goal. I turned 40 and I'm like, you know what? Maybe it's time to function in a polite way in large settings. <laughs> I, need to, I need to start. I really need to start. No, I, I, it, it's amazing. And it's also that Hudson, Field, Hudson Fields, that's another thing. And this will be a little off topic, but not. I remember they were like, they were getting some flack about like their concert series from communities around them from like noise ordinances. And like my daughter does Atlantic lacrosse out there. And all you do is, if you're driven through Sussex County, every field is getting developed. I saw in Milton, there's like a 13,000 home, 450 acre development proposal. And you're like, that Hudson Fields is millions on millions on millions of gold oil that they're sitting on. And it really seems like they use that field for so much. I know Cape Graduation was there with COVID. They had the Winterfest out there, which was a huge deal. And it's awesome that that's a part and a resource in the community when really it should be gone and developed into half acre home lots. Yeah. It's really amazing what they started doing. Um, I believe it was, believe it was pre COVID. Um, but Kyle Schaefer is the one that heads up thankful Thursdays, um, for revelation brewery. And she has done amazing work highlighting and helping nonprofits, especially those of us who have really struggled during COVID. And so their idea was to highlight a, a nonprofit every Thursday and call it Thankful Thursday. Um, and and they have vendors and food trucks and and an opportunity, you know, to get to know whatever the nonprofit is. And then whoever the vendors are can decide if they want to donate part of their proceeds back gotcha. to that organization that night. So you can come hang out. There's going to be live music. And it's just bring your lawn chairs, just sit out, relax, come have a beer, come have some food, come get to know us and throw a spear and get your face painted and whatever else we're going to have going on out there. We'll also do it like a 50, 50 raffle. Um, and then we have some other raffle items. So it should be a fun night. Yeah, no, that that's exactly what a summer night should be, right? Just hanging out yes. in a field. Always a yep. great breeze out there too. I, I, I didn't ask you back in 2012, starting it, like what, what was the motivation? Were you always just this passionate? Did you study this in school? How did you, um, how did you decide to become this kind of advocate? Well, I had been in my former life, I was a labor and delivery nurse, but I, I loved um, trauma and counseling and went back to school um, to get my master's in, in counseling. And in 2012, I, I knew that when I formed the nonprofit, I didn't know really specifically what it was for. I just knew I wanted to help people. And I, I have such a heart for broken young women. And so I wanted to do something to help. And my initial idea was a home for pregnant homeless women. And so I formed the 501c3, but I started calling around to different agencies in the state to kind of find out like where are the voids and where might we get some of our referrals. And somebody said to me, you know, the one, the one void we really have in the state is that we don't have anything for trafficking victims. 
So can I? And I, I thought it had. I'm so sorry to cut you off, but it, when you said that the um the stat in your TED talk with um like thirteen thousand SPCA shelters, can can you give? I I don't want to jack it up, although I just did by doing that. Um, I, I was blown away. I was like, that is perspective. Yeah. So when you have over thirteen thousand shelters for animals. And less than, now I think it's 400 beds max throughout the United States for trafficking survivors. I'm not saying let's not take care of our animals because we absolutely do need to do that. But we need to take care of our kids and we need to take care of, of these kids who have grown into adults who are still being carrying around this trauma deep within them that has never been addressed and doesn't seem to be of great importance um, to to many people in this state. And so um, I think in my TED talk, the numbers were lower. I think there's a few more homes that have opened, but opening a, a home for minors is tough because there's so much bureaucracy and red tape and licensing issues and all of those things. And it's very expensive. And so most people don't don't open home for minors. Expensive um, was, in like the application or in getting the horse farm. And in in the the licensing and the staffing. Oh yeah. Um, if I were to open a home for adults, I could have somebody stop in there in the morning and in the evening, just check on them and see how they are, and no licensing issues, no state issues. They're adults. They can come and go how they want. There's no two people on 24-7, 365. Um, you know, we've spent $100,000 renovating a house that we would not have had to renovate if we had adults in there. Because, do like, this might be stupid. Like, do the, do the victims have to be, like, locked in so that they can't run away? Are we talking, like, security that's, cameras? Or? That's not a stupid question at all because there are some – facilities throughout the country that are locked down. Um, we will not be a lockdown unit. Um, there are not every single kid that has been trafficked will be a good fit for us, but we will make sure that, that we have use our network, you know, throughout the country to make sure that child has a good placement if, if that kid is from Delaware. Um, so for example, you can't have knives in the kitchen. You can't have anything sharp. So in order to have any steak knives or anything, we have to have it in a separate room that has to be able to be locked or we have to totally close off the kitchen. Gotcha. So we ended up creating another room so that we can put all of the paperwork and all of the intake and all of the sharps and all of that stuff locked in the residential director's office. So that was a whole room that had to be built simply because we're doing minors. If we had adults, we wouldn't have those rules given to us. So it's, it's things like that. And, and building, um, in one of the outbuildings, we're building um, an education area. Um, so to be able to supply laptops and desks and whiteboard and filing cabinets and all those things that we need. Plus we're going to need some tutoring assistance. So if anybody's listening that says, look, I'm a teacher, I'm a retired teacher. I would love to help one hour a week and be able to come give tutoring support to these kids and and speak into their lives we would we would welcome them i didn't even that, that 
being a teacher, I can't believe I didn't even think about a 12 year old gets referred. Oh yeah. That means they're in like sixth, seventh grade. They still have some school to do. I, I didn't even consider that. Um, God. Yeah. And sometimes they're 12 and 13 years old, but they haven't been in school for three years. Yeah, right. So academic age. Or they've been homeschooled by their trafficking parents. I still, it's, it, it's so jarring to me, the word trafficking being followed with parents. Like, I just don't picture that. And I, 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 I'm, I, I don't know if listeners do or not, but I, like, when I hear that, I still get the, oh, you know, like the, the heebie-jeebies by that. It's just, it's so, it's so sad. It's, it's so scary. Because you, you think of uh, some creep sleazeball or some like like gangster, drug lord type figure, right? You don't think like a family member doing this. Or a favorite, or a favorite teacher at school. Yeah. Or somebody in county government or your pediatrician. Yeah, right. Yeah, the pediatrician hits home for uh, Lower Delaware. Um, yes. I'm, I didn't mean to divert from uh, you telling the, 12, the 2012 being suggested to you um, to open up the beds, 400, around the 400 beds to, like, there were zero in Delaware. So these, are these, like, actually the first beds that are committed to this cause yes, in Delaware? Yes, we have, we have the first and only home like this in the state of Delaware. And I, I wasn't, you know, I'm not sure how the state of Delaware will respond to this once we get open as far as contracting with us. All that, all that is, is to be determined. Um, my education coordinator, um, her name is Sharon Stevens. She had a meeting actually with um, some of the folks at DFS today to talk about that. Um, but we've, I've already talked with the kids department of the state of Maryland and they're very interested in contracting with us, wondering if, you know, if would we keep two or three beds for them and then save the other three for Delaware? And I said, well, I said, what if we had a magic wand and we were open tomorrow? How many kids could you send us? And she said, oh, easily four or five. From that Maryland. We can think of right now. From that, Maryland. That would need residential services because they have nowhere else to go. Or is it? Yeah, is they, it have, they have 14 beds in the state of Delaware and... Four, and 10 of those beds are only for 90-day placement. So they only have four beds that they send their kids to that are long-term. And she said they're, they're, they just stay full all the time. For human trafficking or just children in need of long-term placement? No, those are, those are trafficked kids. Because we, the, the, that's our population. Like there's, when we talk about the couple hundred beds that are in the United States for survivors, when we look at the ones for kids, there are very few that are open specific for trafficking victims. Sometimes what happens is there will be like a residential youth ranch that will take, quote, troubled kids or kids who have been adjudicated or whatever. And so those systems and homes have been in place for a couple of decades well, then 10 years ago, the federal money comes down the pike for trafficking programs and these well-established programs who weren't doing anything with trafficking before write a grant, get the money and say, okay, now we have a trafficking program. And they may, they may have a track in, in their facility that is a trafficking track for a program, 
but the home itself is not geared specifically for that population the way ours will be. We will not take any other girls except for those who have been trafficked. And why is that so important? It's important because it's really hard when you mix populations because of the trauma. And there's a misunderstanding and a misconception of, of what a trafficking survivor has lived through. If you have another girl who maybe has been sexually abused by a family member, a dad, but it wasn't the exploitation the way the trafficking was. And so as horrible as that is, there often is a comparison of, well, you didn't go through what I went through. And, and it, it's those kind of dynamics. And you, you consider just six, what we would consider healthy, grounded, solid teenagers at 14 to 17 years old. And you put six of them in one house. Yeah. And you know the dynamics that can happen even in healthy, yeah. you know, relationships among non-traumatized girls. And then you add all the complex trauma and the triggers on top of that and put them all together in a room. And then you bring in another population who hasn't walked that journey. And it can be re-traumatizing to everybody in the house. And somebody feels like, well, what happened to me? is on this level is a seven, what happened to you is a four, what happened to her is a 10. And it's just a, it's just an unhealthy dynamic of comparison that can happen. Got you. That, that makes sense. I, um, again, just, I'm learning so much and my mind spins and on a spinning wheel of death in my head. I'm overwhelmed by this information. Cause it, you just, I, again, 40 years old. I don't know if I've ever, thought about this this deeply and that almost saddens me to like realize that I hadn't considered this this deeply you know like sexual well, abuse yes but like the trafficking and exploitation aspect I've never gotten to that second step of this that the severity of it and I work with kids and, and why would you? I mean, you can release yourself from feeling badly about it because if there's no, been no discussion, if there's been no training, if there's, if there's been no awareness of this, how could you possibly have known? And so, I, and I've had law enforcement officers, I've had chiefs of police call me after a presentation, some of them in tears, saying, how have I been doing this for 20 years and I've missed it? And they would not have known about it had it not been for my training. I I really also can't get over the fact that this is not like a SOP standard operating procedure attachment to opioids training when you're being, being just being schooled on how opioids are affecting homes. I, I would think actually I, I shouldn't think I should ask like is there some sort of like correlation percentage likelihood of trafficked victims coming from being lured by a stranger versus being used in a home dealing with addiction? That's an interesting question. That's something too that we don't have stats on just because we're not identifying this and we're not making that correlation yet. But officers who have been trained um, can will absolutely tell you that often where there is where there are drugs, there is sex trafficking. They go hand in hand. And um 
it, it's a, the, say, heroin, for example, that can be used as a, in the force, fraud, and coercion piece because if, if these victims know that they're going to be beaten, they're going to be raped, they're going to be gang raped, they're going to be tortured every single day, and a trafficker says, you're going to deal with this 25 to 40 times a day, but I have something that can numb your pain. It makes sense that, that they would take it. And honest to God, if that was me, I, I would too. Because our souls and bodies and spirits are not meant to withstand that kind of trauma. And so they very easily are, are lured into taking it. And if they don't want to, sometimes they're forced to. And then after a week or two, you don't even have to beat them if they don't meet their quota. You just say you're going to withhold the heroin. And the heroin becomes the trafficker. And it doesn't leave a mark. Much like sleep deprivation, they use sleep deprivation as well as a tool. Um, I'm thinking to the articles I've read where people drug drug trafficking or not drug tra drug charges um with like minors around them in the cars and things like that and again never once considered what could have been like it's a terrible situation for the minor to be in but never thought exploitation just thought danger almost like if you had a kid with you and you get a dui you know you're like why how does that happen right your kid's in danger didn't think exploitation never consider exploitation to get along with it um yeah. There was the case, um, I can't remember what year it was in, it was a couple years ago. It was around the time of my TED Talk, because in my TED Talk, I said, my concern is that people will come from out of state and bring their survivor, their victims in state and traffic them in Delaware. And within a couple of weeks of my TED Talk, there was a case that a Maryland, a, a couple from Caroline County, Maryland, um, it was a woman and her boyfriend in their 30s. They brought a 15-year-old girl into Greenwood, into a hotel, and drugged her and was selling her for sex. And then went back to Carolina County. And it was Maryland State Police that busted that case. Do you have information on like how word gets out about the availability of this victim? Um, there is a, there is a, there are a few websites, um, that are much like Craigslist. And I show some of those in my presentations when I come do presentations for churches and in communities and trainings. Um, they, and they, when the feds come in and shut them down, like they came in and shut down Backpage, but Backpage had been, um, a website for ads. So you could click on an ad like you're buying a refrigerator, but you would actually buy a person for sex. And so um, the feds came in and shut them down, but then they just move to another website. And then if they get shut down, they just move to another. They just keep moving. And so they're, as, as law enforcement hones in, then they just change their tactics. They change to gaming or they change to, I mean, there's, there's just, as, as many opportunities that people have to use their imagination, that's how many ways there are to exploit somebody. I'm just 
looking at those numbers, $1,000 a day, 20 to 40 people involved, I'm like, multiple days, how do you get 100 people a week to know that a child is there? Like, I'm like, and, and not get caught. Like, that's what's blowing my mind, that it seems like so well, much. And the people that buy off of those websites, they, I mean, word spreads. And there's thousands, thousands of people buying sex online. And they know where to go to get it. And you could, go, you could probably Google it. I mean, what is not available to Google at your fingertips at any point? guess so right god yes and it's not just that but there but then you know if you saw my ted talk you saw the spas right that are that are covers for trafficking activity oh and those are all over the state i mean i can drive to a training in dover and pass seven or eight of them on my way there on 13 so they're everywhere it wouldn't be like a a stereotype in a negative way to be like they're legitimate businesses. Like as you go buy them, you're, you see them and you're like human trafficking site. Those women in there giving, or the people in there giving massages are being forced to do that and offer happy endings. Mm-hmm. Many of them. Yes. You can, you, you, it may be stereotypical. Um, and I'm not so trying to do I like a gotcha thing because, or anything like that. I'm just like, Right. There are, I mean, there are, there are, of course, legit spas. Absolutely. I've been in many. I love going to the spa. <laughs> but when you look on a website for spas that have the kind of information that those spas put out, they're not doing pedicures and manicures. So it's pretty evident that when you're paying cash by the hour, at 1030 at night, you're not going in for manicure. Ugh. That's on like their websites that they're open that late cash only. Yes. On, on a particular website, yes. not maybe not on the yeah, Thor not. website, but on a particular website you can go and you'll, you'll know that those are trafficking venues. And, and in Delaware, historically those women who offer the happy ending at the end of the massage, they live there, they work there, they can't leave, they have no freedom of movement, they have no cell phone, but they have a quota. So how else are they supposed to meet their quota besides offering a happy ending to the man that comes in and he knows why he's coming in? He's not there for a legit massage. He knows why he's there. And so what has happened before is if a man goes in and doesn't really know he really is going in for legit massage and then he's offered this happy ending and he calls law enforcement and says, this woman offered me sex and he goes in undercover and she's 40 years old and nobody's got a gun to her head forcing her and she offers him a happy ending at the end of that and he doesn't understand the undercurrent of trafficking, he's going to arrest her prostitute. And that's exactly what has happened in, in the state of Delaware often in the last decade. Yeah, I remember in Rehoboth in particular, they got caught because they like clogged the system, the sewer system with condoms. 
And like, I was, I was giggling about it. Cause you're like, God, that's stupid. But I never once considered like that was forced with quota making. I just thought like, that's, that's how they were trying to make money. Like, I, I mm-hmm. didn't think of it as the exploitation. I thought of them all maybe as like business partners. I didn't. And most people don't because you think they're adult women. And and some of them, you know, if you look in the paper at the arrests that have been made, the, many of them are middle-aged Asian women who come from Flushing, New York. Flushing, New York is right outside of LaGuardia. And that is where many of the international victims will fly into to America who are then sold at that point when they arrive to their trafficker who then takes their paperwork, their IDs, whatever money they had, their visas, and they now control this person's movement. And often this person doesn't speak English. So now their only translator is the trafficker who's holding all their documents. So part of that force, fraud, and coercion piece is... If you tell anybody or you go to law enforcement, we're going to hold the threat of deportation and arrest over your head. And we also know where your family lives and we'll harm or kill them if you, if you rat us out to law enforcement. So then they put them in these spas and say, this is what you need to do to pay us back. They put them in debt bondage and say, it costs us $10,000 to get you here. And now you got to pay me back. And this is how we're going to do it. And then they charge an exorbitant rate for rent or for their food. It makes it impossible to ever pay them back. And they just keep them in slavery. Do the women, the the Asian women who are flying into LaGuardia, are they coming over under some like false pretense of, hey, I have a dry cleaning job. My uncles, you want to go to America? Like, why are they coming initially? Yes. Yeah. Initially, uh, my belief and my experience has been that it's a bait and switch. They're promised the American dream, an education, a great job that they can send money back and support their family. And oftentimes these families scrape together whatever money they have to send this person over because they think they're investing in everybody's future. And this is going to be a great positive step for them. And then when they get here, it's the bait and switch. And then they're completely controlled by the trafficker in America and they have no recourse at all. How is this not more prevalent in like the Hispanic community or other poor nations that have immigrants that come over here? It, it does seem, I don't know if you've ever read about it or researched it, but like that does seem like the Asian massage parlor. It, it, it seems. In that, in that case with the, with the massage parlors, it does In my experience, there have been more middle-aged Asian women who have been involved in that. But there is is trafficking in every community, including the Hispanic community, and especially down here in in Sussex with all the farming and the agriculture and the poultry industry. Um, There are men who are trafficked in the watermelon fields and then women who are brought to them to service them who are sex trafficked. So it's, as I said, it's, Every possible imagination that somebody can have, that's how many ways there are to exploit somebody. What what would be done for the 40-year-old woman? So again, in this scenario, we've kind of covered the the younger, but the older, the older people who are being exploited, 
same type of services or how, how would they get help if the officer was able to detect that they're being exploited? So I work very closely with Lauren Arnold and she is the statewide um, supervisor for Salvation Army's human trafficking program. So any adults are referred to Lauren and that program and her caseworkers. Um, they do not have long-term housing right now. They, they do have um, emergent support, case management, shelter care, um, and, and our, our clinician has offered those women clinical therapy. So we work together with them to offer that. Um, but the state lacks resources for adults as well. Um, Salvation Army is a big machine and they have a lot of anti-trafficking efforts and homes throughout the country. Um, and I know that Lauren is hoping um, soon that there will be funding available for housing for these women as well. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I, again, not to like rank my, my trauma is bigger than your trauma kind of a thing, but I'm, now I'm trying to just put myself in the mind of an older person who's been exploited and I feel like as a younger person, I would, if I'm freed or I get out of it, I feel like I have a future and something to work for once I come to that realization, maybe through some counseling. But if I'm 40 and I get freed, I'd be so, like you're, you're at the tail, you should be going to retirement. You've already had your career. You've saved up some earnings. Maybe your home is almost paid off, right? Like that's kind of the thought process. And to have nothing at 40, I mean, like talk about fearful. I'm just like that, that would not, I don't know if explain is the right word, but like that would be, that chasm would be so large. No wonder you would stay in that situation and maybe not even seek help. Even if you knew you're being exploited at 40, you're, you're a prisoner, but like, what's my option? And also thinking like you're thinking with that, with your adult mature 40 year old brain, that has not had that kind of trauma. So that makes sense to you and me and a lot of your listeners, but keeping in mind that when the brain develops, like there's a downstairs and an upstairs brain. So the downstairs brain develops in childhood and the older you get, the more it like comes up here. And then your prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed until you're 24 or 25. Right. So if you're 12, 15, 18 years old, your brain is still stuck somewhere between the, the downstairs and the upstairs brain. And so you stay in that fight, flight, or freeze and because that's what trauma does to your brain. You can't help it. It just is what it is. And so that 40-year-old, even though they're 40 developmentally, they may not be more than 18 or 20 or 25, depending on the kind of trauma when it happened in their life, there's so many complexities to trauma that I, you know, I, I'm working with an amazing survivor right now who's in her early thirties that we've been helping for the last few years. She is now in her own place. She's held a job really well and is moving up in ranks, you know, in the last two years. Um, she is budgeting. She is considering going back to school she has an amazing, powerful voice. She's an incredible woman who just inspires my work every single day. And, and she sees this life ahead of her 
as her path. And I never, ever see her comparing herself to other 32-year-olds who have something different. There, it, It's just her path and her life, and that's how she sees it. And she's thrilled to have the opportunity to make choices in freedom that she didn't have before. Yeah. And she was, she, she, her, her trafficking took place from the time she was a little girl all through her adulthood. And she is doing that well. So there is a lot of hope. Yeah. If they have the right resources, they have somebody speaking truth, they understand their value that they hold innately as a human being, which most of that has been stripped. But if they don't have resources and truth to wrap around them, it's very, very hard to help them move forward in that. And think about how many people, because Sussex County is, I mean, we're, we're pretty, I know there's poverty, but a lot of people are pretty well off from the basic standpoint of job and budgeting and upward momentum, upward, like being able to move up in your job. Like those are things that you can so easily take for granted to be like, yeah, I know how to organize my money, pay my bills on time, get my credit right. And I know how to become an assistant manager, key holder, third door. Like now I'm a regional. It, it's easy to take that for granted as like, you don't know that? You don't know you pay your electric every 15th? <laughs> right. And that's part of the whole, the whole issue of reframing what is success. Yeah. What does success look like? So when you go to when you go to your therapy every week, when you go to your job every week, when you walk your dog every day, yeah. when you do when you make your bed every day, like those things are all choices that have to be made that they had no control over before. And so that is huge success. And the fact that she even wants to consider going back to school, huge success. Yeah. And of course she wants to go back to school to help other people. Right. Like social work is, you know, so, so we talk about the complex trauma, but there is hope and there is healing as long as the resources and the truth to wrap around them can meet them in that place. And they're at a place where they are willing to say, yes, I, I want to be, I want to be out. Like they do have to make the choice. They are ready for a, for a change. And, and that's really hard when you're trauma bonded. someone can you as much as you can share and i I know i feel like you're gonna say it's her story and i don't mean to be rude but like what what helps maybe then in more general terms what helps in your experience victims to realize they want to break that trauma bond so yeah it doesn't have to be specific to her i don't want to have to put her stuff out there yeah um it takes a long time it takes consistency it's like um it's like a transfer of a trust and a bond from one unhealth to trust and a bond to something healthy. It is like, you know, like a trapeze artist yeah. when they're go, they go back and forth a couple times. And then when the timing's just right, they let go, turn and grab onto the next bar. Yeah. It's like the unhealthy, but in that, in that space in between, it's scary because you're like swinging back and forth and you're getting close but you're not quite ready to make that leap. But if you trust that other bar that has been consistent and truthful and loving over a long period of time, you're willing to let go here to come over here. But that's about relationship. 
It's not about resources. You can throw all the money you want, but money has never been their issue. It's a relation, like trauma happens interpersonally. Trauma happens within relationship when it's complex trauma. Therefore, the healing also has to happen in relationship. So we have to prove over a long period of time that we are trustworthy, that we are loving, that we do want their best, that we do give them choices and we don't tell them what they need to do or who they need to be or what choices they need to make. We let them know they have the the agency within themselves to be able to make those decisions and we're proud of the decisions that they make. But it's consistency over time, over a long period of time and who you are really comes out and they can read people. These survivors have survived because they're very good at picking up different aspects about people and whether they're trustworthy or not. And so there are some of the smartest people, most inspiring people I've ever met in my entire life. And I cannot imagine doing any other work. I love, absolutely love what I do. And these survivors are amazing. I've worked with some, some of the most amazing women. I think you brought up something that's super important. I would be talking to you. I'm learning how fearful I am and maybe how pessimistic I am. I would be so scared hiring people and then like three months in, they're out, you know, six months. It just seems like if you're going to get into this field, you really should commit to the position for a sustained period of time or else it's just not going to be a successful program. It's a disservice to the clients. Yeah, we, we do ask that, um, of our, of our folks that come work with us that they see it as a long-term, um, sort of mission ministry minded, not just a job for that very reason. And most of the people that would come to us are coming because they have a heart to really truly help. And so when they understand that that consistency over time is that's part of our program mm. and they need to know that the house isn't going anywhere, that we're not going anywhere. Um, and that, and that we're, we're in it for the long haul with them. And so that's, that is one of the important messages that we do want to get to our residential staff. Um, and that's part of their training. Yeah. Right. Which would show the emphasis of, having that home or having the farm owned outright. Like that's a sustainable, Hey, we're not going to not be able to pay the mortgage next month. <laughs> Sorry. Right. Go find somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. The consistent yep. Way. And there are programs that I've talked to throughout the country and, and all they can do is afford like to rent an apartment yeah. month by month. And, and the women know that yeah. they know that in th- like we're good for 30 days, but beyond that, we don't really know. And so that's part of the sustainability of this is us not having a mortgage and it being outright owned and trusting, like we trust God with absolutely everything. We trust him with the funding. We trust him with bringing the people, the right people to work. I can't read the hearts of people. I don't, I don't really know who people are when they give me an application and a resume and go through an interview. Anybody can really do that. But we are trusting that God is going to bring the right people because he reads it all. He knows it all. And this is his deal. It's not mine. I don't get to, I don't decide what's happening. I let him decide. And I'm, I'm putting my hand to the work that he's doing, not the other way around. And so I don't get nervous or scared because I trust him that he's going to bring the right people. 
yeah, that's, that, I don't know. I'm, again, I've like, my mind spins on saying that. It's awesome to have that perspective and that confidence and it's paying off. I mean, like it, it's awesome that I'm just super excited that something like this is around and that I've fortunate enough to just have this knowledge now where God forbid, if I come across something, I kind of know how to like contact, how to get help in some sort of way. Or if even in professional discussions, if somebody mentions something, I'm like, Oh my God, this thing over here can help with that. And yes. that's part of what I think is lack. Cause you're right. Like we're going back to the airport sign, see something, say something or the DUI checkpoint. You see it in the Cape, like the cops tell you, Hey, we're going to be out looking for drunks 4th of July weekend. But they're like, you, you don't see this reminder of, Hey, quick little public service announcement. You see it for vaping, right? You, you see about the, the fear for vaping and kids vaping and opioids, addicts and strokes, right? If, if you feel numbness on your face, you know what to do. But like, if you said, if someone even came to you and like, Hey, I'm being trafficked, I, what would be the next call the cops? I'll call the cops for you. But now like, it's just nice to know there's a next yes. step after the cops come. Cause that is, it, it's, it's traumatic to break free of that. Yes. Um, so I, I want to wrap up a little bit and I want to do, I guess, two things. Why Zoe ministry? Is there anything behind the name Zoe in particular? Yes. So Zoe is Greek and it means life. And for us, life is, is Jesus. And so that's what we offer. Um, we don't proselytize, even though we're faith-based, we meet these kids exactly where they are. If they hate God, we let them hate God. That is their choice. Um, we, we're not going to force Bible study. We're not going to force church, nothing like that. To us, what, what Zoe and life and life in Christ means is that we do the work that we do because we love God and God loves people. Therefore, we love people. And so we want to offer the most abundant life and, and replace the exploitation they had for the life that God created them to have. And power. so it's, it's that it's, it's really, um, we do the work that we do because we love God. Yeah. That's awesome. Cause I wonder how many people might see the word like ministries and be like, I ain't going with them church people. I'm not trying to get saved. I love my life kind of a thing. And they, that would almost reinforce their trauma bondage because it's another barrier. They see it as like another controlling or even like a cult kind of a thing. And I'm not saying you are, but I think sure. some people can associate religion with their experiences. And absolutely. And, and there, there have been, we've had some negative feedback because we are faith-based. And, and I understand that that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and that's why it's important for us to explain what that means to us. And it just means that it's just why we do what we do because we love people and not because anybody has to share our beliefs. And if, if they never come to the same belief, we love them, we will provide them for what they need and we will do our best to represent God well to them. Even if, they don't ascribe to our beliefs. It's probably the best way 
to represent God and foster a relationship is not to like force it on people. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of, that's kind of the biblical, almost like the biblical message in essence is like, you really can't force love onto people. Cause if right. you do, exactly. you're basically, you're a captor and that shouldn't be what love yeah. is. Right. Um, Yolanda, is there anything we didn't get into? I'm sorry that I got, um, I'm always just so scatterbrained, but honestly, I'm just over the whole time. I've just been overwhelmed and, I don't have like a pulse meter, but I feel like, I mean, I've been like sweating the whole time. Um, I just, it's been overwhelming. So I don't know if there's something we didn't get into that we should. Um, I feel like you, you say you're scatterbrained, but I feel like you did a really great job. And this is a really overwhelming topic, especially when you've never had a conversation about it. You've never really heard about it. You've never really been exposed to about it. And and it is overwhelming. And there are days that all of us, even doing the work for a long time, get overwhelmed because there is so much evil and and there are bad people that do really bad things to kids. And that in and of itself should make us sweat. It should make us cry. It should make us overwhelmed. And when it stopped making us do those things, we're in a bad, bad place. Yeah, that's Because good. then we just... Put, put our, put our, I mean, if, when I tell somebody about this for the first time and they don't react, that's a red flag for me about who that person is. So we should be, we should be reacting within ourselves to something like this because it's, it's evil and it's criminal. Yeah. It's, it, it's vile, man. And I, I just, the, the, it's again, it, it's I, maybe telling about me that I tend to go to like the numbers and the monetary, but when you say like the victims, their need would be found. I immediately was like, Oh, they want an iPhone. So it's like a quid pro quo. Hey, I'll give you this iPhone. And the emotional aspect that we then got into is what I'm stunned by because you're to have that happen to your mind and mentality at any age, especially at a child's age is just so disheartening and it almost like fills you with anger. It fills me with anger, like rage. Like I want to physically hurt the person doing this to any child. And like, I almost skip over the and victim I, in I, that sense. And I want to like, just go hurt this. And it's like, well, whatever to that person, I need to actually love and help this other, the victim heal. That should be where my energy goes, not towards hating, although they deserve to be hated. <laughs> the person doing it, it's like, let me try to shift my mind on to loving and supporting the victim going through this. And it's, and I understand that anger because I struggled with that. Um, in 2012 and 2013, I really struggled because it was safer emotionally for me to mm. open a home for pregnant homeless women. Um, and I wrestled with, with anti-trafficking work because the mountain was so huge. There was no help. I had people trying to shut me down and shut me up and no money and no state law and no nothing. And, and I, I had anger toward the perpetrators and because I'm a Christian, I thought I cannot move forward in Zoe ministries with this much hatefulness in my thought pattern. And so I prayed about it and I said, I, I, I said, God, I need you to help me with this. And I need you, if you want me to do this work, you have to take this anger because I cannot work like this because I'll be, I'll be furious every day yeah. and I cannot, 
I cannot live like that. Like my spirit can't live like that. And so I prayed about it for a couple of days and I'll never forget this as long as I live. I was sitting on my couch and I had my three-year-old son sitting at my feet on the floor playing with Legos. And I was working on my counseling degree at the time. And so I was typing on my laptop and I just felt God kind of whispered, look at your son. And so I, I looked at him and he's just playing, fiddling around with Legos. And I very gently heard God say, they all start just like that. They all start like that. And then something happens to them. Abuse, neglect, whatever it is. And that hurt never has been healed. And they grew up being what they've got. So if the abuse was gray and you're holding a gray crayon, you're going to color gray. You're going to give away what you have. Yeah. And so something happened in the life of that man that was never healed, that never had the resources and truth meeting him at that place. And he grew up with it complete with his trauma, not dealt with. And now he's giving away trauma to other people. And that's why it's important to get to these kids because we are going to prevent many others from being traumatized who will then traumatize others who will then traumatize others. And, and almost instantly, like my anger was gone and I have this immense compassion for, for people knowing that had I grown up in the same situation he did, and never had anybody speaking truth to it, never had the resources, never had the tools, I'd be coloring with that same green, gray crayon, and I could be a perpetrator. Mm-hmm. And, But by the grace of God, there go I. And so from that point on, I felt like I was launched into this work. And so there are days I still have vehemently angry ideas about what I'd like to do (laughs) to people who hurt children. I'm not saying I have a halo above my head. I have those thoughts sometimes daily, but I know it's, it's, that's not my focus. Like you said, my energy has to go to let me help be a conduit to heal these kiddos. And that's where my heart lies. That's where my focus and attention has to be. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. That's where it should be, right? I think that's great words to end the podcast on. Yolanda, thank you so much for taking the time to come on, letting people know about um, this resource that's available in Delaware, the first one of its kind in Delaware. It's freaking, it's awesome. It's awesome, the work you're doing. And I really hope you continue to just find support and help throughout the community, both private and public. Like, I really think the government should make this an itemized list. I don't know if it's a Sussex County budget issue or if it's just a governor Carney, like state budget issue, but I think there's enough resources where there should be some steady money allocated to um, helping the youth like this. So yeah, thank you so much for talking about this. Thank you, Sean. I I appreciate your invitation. Um, I appreciate you taking interest in learning about this and learning about us and getting us out there to um, your network of people that we may not have been able to 
cross paths with any other way. And we would love for people not only to come visit us at Hudson Field next Wednesday night, but consider giving $35 a month. You can do PayPal through our website. Um, we're not offended by more cash. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're offended by less. I, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and the other thing people can do is contact your legislators and say, we heard this podcast on trafficking. We heard you want, they all know me. They're most of them know me unless they're, they're newer ones that have come on board since COVID. Um, but to be able to say, what, what is the state doing? Like, what kind of bills have you helped sponsor or co-sponsor when it comes to trafficking? What is the governor's office doing about this issue? And start asking questions, being kind and being polite, but asking the question and saying, what's happening in our state with this? Yeah, the number, when you gave me the Maryland number in comparison to the DFS Delaware number from 2019, it was 400 to 34, I believe. And um, mm -hmm. like you just, it, my mind immediately wonders about all the unidentified victims out there. And then if, if there's no infrastructure in place, once you start pursuing, it's, I don't know if it's just as bad, but, but it's bad to not have any support when you're then helping people, trying to help people. Absolutely. So I yes. think that's important. You want to have, the, everybody complains about infrastructure not being built in Sussex County for the homes. <laughs> like we should have infrastructure built for this problem that's clearly around. Yes. All right. And, Absolutely. Um, and it's July 15th, right? Because even though we're talking today, which I think is the ninth, um, the pot will get posted. I'll, I'll definitely get this up before the 15th. This way um, it can be out. So July 15th. Actually, it's the 14th. July. It's the 14th. Okay. Thankful Thursday is on a Thursday, but then the rain date for it is the following Wednesday. Got you. All right. So it's actually next Wednesday, 14th. Got yeah. you. Good thing I misspoke about that and you were here to clarify. <laughs> All right, Yolanda, thank you again. Um, best of luck going forward. And I'm thank sure we'll you. be in touch. Thank you, Sean. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Listeners, search him up. What else are you doing right now? The podcast is over. Andre Psyche, P-S-Y-C-H-E on social media. Give him a follow just for the fuck of it. Thanks to Dewey Crush, the summer's most sought out and coveted East Coast drink for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Bring a case of Dewey Crush, the delicious, refreshing, ready-to-drink canned cocktail with you for your next summer event. Why? So you can crush it. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review the Getting to Know You pod on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. Please, dear listeners, go to our Patreon. Support the pod for as little as $2 a month if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests or would like to just support us in improving the quality, distribution, and production of the pod. It's getting the number two. No, the letter U, pod. If you have not already, please friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and finally, if you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide-ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. How to make it happen? Just DM us, send us a message, email, you could call if you can find my number. Later, listeners.